all of us have been set free from the chains of sin that held us captive, that held us in bondage, that kept us from knowing the freedom that we have in Christ of forgiveness and of grace and of mercy. Once we know that, living it out in a consistent way is essential. Because if we're not careful, once we know that we've been saved, we can get in a rut. We're saved, we're satisfied, we're happy. And we forget the world we came from still needs the message that we heard. And so as we wrap up this Kingdom Living series uh, this morning, I want us to look at Romans 15, 1 through 3, as we talk about the need for perseverance and encouragement. Uh, you cannot read the Gospels, you cannot read the New Testament without realizing that God has spoken to us in ways that are counterculture. Our culture, all cultures, human nature, the depravity of man is all about what's in it for me? What are you going to do for me? What am I going to get out of it? And so when God gave us a word, he told us things about one another, about loving one another, bearing one another's burdens, and, and that's not easy. But you see, gospel-minded living is others-centered. We live for the glory of God, to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, but we also love our neighbor as ourself. And so our living is others-centered. Here's what happens when we embrace that. The closer we grow, the stronger we grow. When we live in silos and when we live without fellowship with one another and relationship with one another, when we live in isolation or we always are looking in our own mirror and never looking through the window, we don't grow close and we don't grow strong. And so Paul is addressing several things in here about being a living witness, and he says two things in particular. First of all, admit our need of others. We need to admit our need of others. We can't live in isolation. The monks thought that you would become holy by getting in a hole and crawling off and forsaking being around anybody or anything else. God made us to live in community. One of the reasons why if you are part of this church, you hear us talk about small group Bible studies on Sunday morning. And one of the reasons we do it on Sunday morning is you're already here. I mean, you're already here. You don't have to get up and go anywhere else. You're already here. But secondly, in those kind of settings, you learn relationships and you build relationships that help you in the crisis of life and in the down times, the up times, when there's births or deaths or whatever's going on, you've built a community, a small community within your Bible study class that helps you. We're at our best when we are working and serving and loving with others. Secondly, we need to work at relationships. Work at relationships. Now, relationships take time. They just take time. You have to work at them. They don't just happen. And you work at building a relationship. 
Uh, I have relationships with people in Israel today because over the past 12 to 15 years, I've worked at building those relationships. It, it's a little effort to sit down and figure out seven hours time difference and where they are and if they're working in that time or if they're in bed or if I'm in bed. It takes a little work, but you work at relationships. And working at relationships is more than saying to somebody, hey, how are you? Good to see you, and just keep walking. Working at relationships is God prompting us to be the kind of people that are sensitive when we see somebody and God says, go speak to them, go ask them how they're doing, go ask them if you can pray for them. Working at it. Because that's perseverance and that's encouragement. So let's look at verses 1 through 6, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 4 at the marks of the godly. Now, what he says in verse 4 is very similar to what he said in the way of warning in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. In 1 Corinthians 10, he's giving a warning. In Romans, he is giving an encouragement. But he says, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. In other words, this is not just, you know, a little punch on the shoulder, pat on the back, little hug, little high five. He says this perseverance and encouragement is coming through the scriptures, knowing the word and the word being what prompts us to encourage and to persevere. Now, may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement, that's where it comes from, grant you to be, and now watch what he's asking, of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's intentionality. That's kingdom living. It is perseverance and encouragement of the same mind, of one accord, of one voice, and is built around the scriptures. God does not encourage sloppy agape. Just, I just love everybody. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying it is intentional love the way God has loved us. It is intentional encouragement the way the Spirit has encouraged us. It is prompting each other along, and it happens with a renewed mind. That's where we began in Romans chapter 12, that we have a renewed mind, that we have the mind of Christ. Listen, you're going to win a lot more battles by loving and listening than by arguing and posting on social media. I had to this morning, at 5 o'clock this morning, send a text message to two friends in ministry and say, you need to pull that post down. That is divisive, it's disruptive, it doesn't build up the body of Christ, and it doesn't represent the things that I think that we are about. Now, until we start persevering and encouraging and say, what, and instead of just going, I tell you what, if it had been me, I wouldn't have done that. Well, in the spirit of love, you ought to be able to say to somebody that you love, I wouldn't have done that. Not say it to everybody else, say to somebody you love, I wouldn't have done that. You see, our love is not sentimental, it's based on Scripture. Now, the Bible never tells us this is easy. It does imply that it's worth it. 
because it's about the body working together. And so if we have the same mind, if we're of one accord and in one voice and, of the, and have one mind together, that brings God's glory. Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let me just give you a little thought here. The justified should live like they are sanctified. The justified should live like they are sanctified. We should persevere and we should encourage one another to persevere. And we should encourage those that are down and distraught and lonely and hurting. And we should stay at it because the justified ought to live like the sanctified. So Paul, remember, has begun this whole thing around a transformed and renewed mind. And in verse 4, he says, the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. What is the key to hope? We live in a world where people don't have any hope, don't seem to feel like there is any hope. They feel like we're, we're on a road headed off a cliff into a ditch and, and there's snakes at the bottom of it. How do we have hope? Through perseverance and encouragement. Let's look at these two words. Per perseverance means to keep on keeping on. Now, let me give you two ways that you can look at this word. In classical Greek, it means an army that stays in the battle until the victory is won. Nobody's retreating. Nobody's bailing out. Nobody's going AWOL. Nobody's quitting. The army that stays in the battle, the, pers the perseverance doesn't run from the battle, but runs to the battle. Or it is in the context of athletics, where you run until the end of the race, until you cross the finish line. Paul talks about that in another letter about running and finishing the course. This word perseverance is not about, there is no picture, none, not a zip, zero. No picture in the New Testament of a true believer that runs for a year or two, then leaves high school, goes to college and quits running. There's none of somebody that gets saved in their 20s or 30s and runs for a couple of years and comes to refresh or goes to a conference or goes to a marriage retreat and they run for a while and then they quit running and you look around and say, what happened to those people? By the way, everybody that's not here today, at some point in their life, they were very faithful. And the Bible says if we're going to change that, we have to persevere and encourage Listen, you cannot look at a roll and empty seats in a class and do nothing about it and honor the scriptures. You can't do it. Because those people are under your watch. They're under your authority. They're under your leadership. You are the shepherd of that small group class. And you are accountable before God for what happens to those people. Not whether they respond or not, but what you do to try to lead them to respond. There's an accountability in all of this. So that's perseverance. We are to persevere and encourage people to stay at it. Stay at it until the battle is won. 
Then there's encouragement, same word here as the word used for the Holy Spirit, the paraclete. Both words are in verses 4 and 5. In verse 4, he's quoting scripture, talking about that which was written in earlier times. In verse 5, he's reminding us that they both come from God. God gives this. Now, if there's somebody in your family or you personally or somebody that you know in a church, this church or any other church, and they're inconsistent, they don't persevere, and they do not encourage, nor do they respond to any encouragement, you can write them a note, you can call them, you can take them out to eat, but they go right back in the same old trough. I can tell you two reasons why, and they're pretty obvious reasons. Number one, they are not in the Word on a consistent basis. Because you can't read the Word of God and ignore what it says. They're not in the Word on a consistent basis. And secondly, they're not fellowshipping with godly people on a consistent basis. They're finding people to fellowship with that let them live a carnal, inconsistent life and never challenge the way they live. And so if you, if you and I are going to be the church and live out Christianity, then we have to persevere and encourage because the context of encouragement and perseverance in this passage is consistency. So verse 5, he moves to a prayer. He goes from an exhortation to intercession, and, and he moves to a prayer with just a breath, with just the stroke of a pen. He, he starts praying. What is he praying for? He's praying for unity in the body, for unity in the body. Chapter 15 and verse 5, to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. Unity in the body. Now, if the body is in unity, I'm not talking about uniformity. I'm talking about unity. If the body is in unity, it's of the same mind with Christ. Are, everybody's on the same page. We may have different personalities. We may have different likes and dislikes, but we're on the same page when it is about Christ, that we are one in Christ, and that's bigger than anything else. So he's praying for unity in the body. But in verse 6, he's praying for unity in worship. With one voice glorifying the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So a unified body, a, a body in unity, will also have unity in worship. We'll worship the Lord together. And the quality of our worship is tied to our spiritual condition. Now, I know none of you have ever done this, but have you ever been in a worship service and somebody's just doing this? You know what they're doing? They're self-righteously judging what's going on. They are not worshiping. Say, I'm not a singer. There's nothing in there that says you've got to be a singer to worship. Amen. But you better figure something out because Revelation says when you get to heaven, you're going to worship. So the question is, if you're religious and you don't worship, do you really know Jesus? Because if you know Jesus, you want to worship him, and you want to do it with a body of believers. I know you think you're great at worship when you're in the shower singing, but you sound a whole lot better when you're around some other people that can drown you out. 
You see, if my heart is not right with God and with one another, there's no unity in the body and there's no unity in worship. I can't worship with you if I'm not worshiping God. I may be in the room with you. I may be standing by you. I may be in the same environment with you, but I'm not getting it because I can't worship with you if I'm not worshiping God. If you study what's going on in heaven in Revelation, I mean, they are worshiping and bowing down. So, so our character and our conduct is tied to when our worship is correct. And worship correct, being correct, has nothing to do with style. It has everything to do with heart. You see, Mark on his best day, praise team on their best day, band on their best day, choir on their best day cannot make you worship. In fact, they can't even lead you to worship. You bring your worship with you. So if there's no worship when you get here, it's an indication there was no worship all this week before you got here. Because we bring our worship with us. We bring the overflow of what God has been doing in our lives and we gather together as a body and worship him. So what are the marks of mutual acceptance? Verse 7. Changes the tone a little bit here. Therefore accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. That's a whole sermon right there. For I say that Christ has become a servant of the circumcision. He's talking about the Jews. On behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name. Again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. By the way, Gentiles, that's us. Unless you are by birth a Jew, you are a Gentile. It doesn't matter what race or color you are, you are a Gentile. It's Jews and everybody else. Gentiles or everybody else. And so he says that Jesus came for us to sing and rejoice with his people, Jews and Gentiles, worshiping together. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. And again, Isaiah says, there shall come from the root of Jesse, that's the house of David, that's the line of David, and he who arises to rule, that's Messiah, Jesus, over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. Who are the Gentiles hoping in? The same person that the Jews are hoping in, God's deliverer. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now this should be in your notes, so I'm not going to take time to go over this much. But look at this progression. Verse 9, the Jews glorify God among the Gentiles. Verse 10, the Gentiles rejoice with the Jews. In other words, let me just stop right there and just everybody just look here. In other words, if this Bible is true, it does not say white people worship here, black people worship here. Spanish people worship here, Asians worship here. It says Jews and Gentiles rejoice. The Gentiles rejoice with the Jews. Barriers and boundaries are made by the devil and by man and by godless systems, not by the God of this word. 
So here he says that the Gentiles rejoice with the Jews. They're not looking at Jews saying, I'll tell you one thing, I'm not going to worship with those people. They, they, they're different. And all the Jews and Gentiles together praise God, chapter 15 and verse 11. And Christ shall reign over Jews and Gentiles, chapter 15 and verse 12. So let me just give you a little breakdown here. It's going to come on the screen. Romans 15a covers the period of the Gospels through Acts chapter 1 through 7. So when you read Romans 8, 15a, that covers all that you see happening in the Gospels and in the first seven chapters of Acts. Romans 9 describes Paul's ministry as he witnessed to the Gentiles. So as the gospel began to spread out of Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth, this begins to explain it. Romans 15 and verse 10 could be applied to the church council in Acts 15 where they were having discussions about how somebody was saved if they had to become a Jew first and then become a Christian. And when the Gentiles were given equal status with his people. And today, Jews and Gentiles in the church are praising God together. There are no second-rate citizens in the kingdom of God. None. That does not exist. That is not New Testament thinking and is not thinking that pleases Jesus. So the question you ought to ask when you choose a church or when you stay in a church is, is that the way that church is thinking? Is that church just a little holy huddle of us four and no more? Is that church just a group of people that are all related to each other physically and they kind of run the church but they don't want to let anybody in? I mean, have they got German shepherds at the door to make sure if you don't look like them, you don't come in? That's not a church, folks. That's a religious hypocrite society. That's not a church. So you got to ask the question, is this the kind of fellowship? Is this the norm? Because Jesus set a pattern for us when he went to Samaria, when he gave us the Great Commission to go into all the world, he set a pattern for us, and Paul picks up on it, and it says God has given us a gospel that brings people together, and when we obey that gospel, then God's glory was the plan of creation, but God's glory is also the plan of redemption. Creation glorifies God, but the church should glorify God in redemption. So in verse 6, he's talked about worship. In verse 7, he's dealt with fellowship. In verse 8, he's talking about missions. For the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. Now, there is no way that I've got time to dissect all of this. But the bottom line is, Christ came for the Jews for the Gentiles. The salvation of you and I was not an afterthought with God when the Jews rejected Jesus. It was not plan B. From the time of Abraham, it was God's plan that the nation of Israel would be a light to the world of one God, one true God. So this is not an afterthought. This is not a, oh man, we got to make some adjustments. Things didn't work out like we wanted to. So Jesus came and he became a servant in verse 8. He was a Jew sent for, to the Jews for the lost house of Israel. So your Savior is a Jew. 
By the way, for every one of us in this room, as far as I can tell, our Savior is a person of another race. Get over yourself. You had nothing to do with what race you were born in, and if you start thinking you're better than somebody else, then you're not thinking like a Christian. You're not thinking like Jesus. I know the world feeds that because the world feeds hate and division. God feeds building bridges and building relationships. He was a Jew sent to the Jews to, for the lost house of Israel. He was sent to fulfill the covenant with Abraham. I mean, if you read Matthew's genealogy and you read through just the gospel of Matthew, it goes from Abraham straight to Bethlehem, straight to the cross, to the empty tomb, and to the ascension. There is a line that is unbreakable from the covenant with Abraham all the way to Christ's ascension that says Christ came to save the least and the lost and to save all who would come to him. He came that the Gentiles might be saved, verse 9. He was a light for revelation to the Gentiles. So, don't miss this. Jesus quotes in Luke's gospel, and now Paul does here in Romans, the law and the prophets. Both of them refer back to the law and the prophets telling us what we're supposed to be doing. And what they were doing was saying, now here's what the law says and here's what the prophets say, and you're not doing it. Jesus said that. Paul writes to the Romans, here's what the law says, here's what the prophets say, and you're not doing it. You see, Jesus did not come for us to have church. He came for us to be the church, to be the living body of Christ in this world. And so we are given opportunities to know him and to let him be known. So missions is biblical. It is a biblical agenda. The New Testament is a missions book. It is about how we are to live on mission in this world. In him shall the Gentiles hope. Here's what I want. I want to see the glory of God in every city, in every nation, and in every corner of the world. But if I don't want it with the people that live 200 yards from here, I'm just talking. If I don't want it with people that are of a different socioeconomic level than me or educational level than me or race than me or even a different denomination than me, if I don't want it for all people, then I'm just talking. I'm not really a believer living it out. It's one thing to say we want to reach the world. It's another thing to look at the world as messy as it is and say, yep, that's the world we want to reach. When Paul went to Athens and he saw the Athenians giving themselves to idols, it says in the book of Acts that Paul was provoked in his spirit when he saw them in this idol worship. It's a medical term for a heart attack. It says Paul's heart erupted when he saw the idolatry. When have our hearts erupted? over the idolatry in Albany, Georgia? When have our hearts erupted over the idolatry in Lee County and in Dawson 
and in Smithville and in Sylvester and in Tifton and in Cordell in all of Southwest Georgia, this part of the world that God has put us in. When has our heart erupted enough to do something more than just sit in our seats and check the box that we were here and walk out and do nothing to change the dynamic of our community? Paul closes with a prayer that we would have the power of the Holy Spirit. And our prayer is that we walk in that power. This week we're going to have a concert of prayer on Thursday night during the National Day of Prayer. We're going to pray for unity and we're going to pray for our community. We, we got people at odds with each other on 10,000 different things. There are 80,000 people that live in Darty County. They got 975,000 opinions, and most of them aren't worth listening to. Because the only thing that is going to fix this county or any other county, this city or any other city, is a massive move of God that washes away the filth and the sin and the self righteousness of the church first and then the community. I want to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Luke's. Gospel, Luke chapter 4. <clears throat> and I want you to see this lived out, not just in Paul, but I want you to see this exposure of Jesus to this mentality that needed to change. Luke chapter 4, we're in the little town of Nazareth, probably 40 or 50 families in that town at the time of Jesus. The town would have been seated a little down in the valley now it's up on the hills uh, outside of the town about a mile and a half two miles is Mount Precipice where they would try to throw Jesus off the mountain for saying these words Luke chapter 4 verses 14 through 30 and I'm not going to read them all I just want you to jot some notes in your Bible or on your note page about this Jesus has been out working miracles and he's been out teaching he returns to Nazareth his hometown, and he turns to reveal truth, but the word has been spreading about his miracles and about what he's been doing, and so he goes to the synagogue, and they look at Jesus and said, here's that young little boy. I remember that little boy. He's such a cute little boy. He, he was in my little missions class, and I remember him. I remember him, and his daddy brought him church for the first time, and his mama, his mama was such a good, good woman, she's just a good woman, and he's out there, he's, he's called to preach, he's a little preacher boy, and now he's come home. Well, the prophet's without honor in his own country, and never was that more true than when God showed up in his own town, and they rejected him. Listen, if you reject God, you reject anybody speaking truth. And so he shows up, and they invite him, well, let's just ask him to read a little scripture. And typically it would have been a longer scripture reading than this, but he, he takes the scroll, whether he was given the scroll or he chose the scroll of Isaiah 61, and he reads two verses. And here's what he reads. That he, to preach the gospel to the poor, to proclaim release to captives, to recover sight to the blind, and to set people free. Then he rolled up the scroll, and he said, today... This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And at first they, they're okay, but then he gives them some illustrations and they get ticked off, which is why I know the synagogue in Nazareth was a Baptist church. Because <laughs> they got mad at the message. Listen, I'm just the messenger. 
It's not my message, it's his message. So what did Jesus do to people that he knew best and they thought they knew him best? He gives them two illustrations. The valley of Jezreel sits down below the city of Nazareth and he calls up to memory, their memory, two people that they would have known their names very well, the prophet Elijah and the prophet Elisha. And as you read down through these verses, you'll see that Elijah visits the home of a widow who is a Gentile. This is not just New Testament, this is Bible. He visits the home of a widow who is a Gentile who is in great need. Now, here's what most of the people in Nazareth would have said. You know, we've got a lot of widows in Nazareth too. We don't have time to do everything for those Gentiles. There are just so many of them. I just think he should just focus on us first. Let's just make sure everybody in our Sunday school class is taken care of before we worry about anybody else. I mean, this is appalling. Now listen, I, I stood inside that synagogue this week. You could put about 80 people in it. Dates back to the first century. And so Elijah ministers to a widow who is a Gentile, which was a slap in the face of self-righteous religion that said God should only work with people like me. Then he goes to Elisha. Elisha is the prophet that followed Elijah, who ministered in the same area. And there were lepers all over the land, but Elisha healed Naaman, the leper, a Gentile, not a Jew. So Jesus says to them, you want to know what I'm about? I'm about the poor. I'm about releasing captives. I'm about recovering sight to the blind. I have fulfilled this scripture in your sight and in my ministry, and I've come home to give you a chance to repent of your self-righteous Judaism and religion that thinks it's all about you. Here's what they wanted. They wanted Jesus to perform miracles. They didn't want Jesus to give the message. You don't know how to fill this building? I'll just start telling people I'm a miracle worker. I would just start laying hands on people and I'll start telling people I'm a miracle worker. I can get rid of disease and hate and hurt and, and we'll just start having all those kind of services. We'll, go, we'll fill this building up. Jesus healed a lot of people, but the minute he started telling them the truth, the scriptures say many quit following him that day. You see, everybody wants a miracle. Nobody wants the message. Because we'd rather live on the feelings of seeing miracles than on the facts of living by faith, by the truth of what God says. And so Jesus confronted this ongoing mindset of wanting miracles, not the message. And here's what Nazareth was basically saying to him. Why are you wasting God's blessings on Gentiles? Why are you taking time to minister to Gentiles when there's so many of us that have so many needs? 
Jesus was reminding them, I came to remind you that the nation of Israel was to be a light to the Gentiles, not a light in a holy huddle that you close the door and pull the blinds down so you don't see or hear a lost world around you. You are to be the light to the Gentiles. So I've come back to tell you folks, God did not call Sherwood Baptist Church to sit on this corner and to take up this property to just have church the way we want to have church. Because every empty seat in this building is an indictment that we have not cared to the point of tears and our hearts erupting over the lostness of our community, over the lostness of our neighbors, over the lostness of this world. And part of what has happened to us over the years, I'm just the messenger, part of what has happened to us over the years is we have enjoyed Sherwood so much that we're scared that anybody else that comes in, we might not enjoy it as much because we're going to have to do what God told us to do. I do not preach to give you information to be received. I preach to give you truth to be acted on. Paul says, with perseverance and encouragement, so that the Gentiles might praise his name. Let's stand together with heads bowed and eyes closed. <clears throat> now, I don't, I don't know what you need to do today. But I know the last thing this church needed today, and we prayed about it as a staff this morning, the last thing this church needs to do today is just come and have a service and walk out and not do anything different this week than we did last week. We have seeds to plant. We have lives to invest in. We have people to talk to. We have things that we need to do, places that we need to go, people we need to see, people that we need to share good news with. Part of our problem is we... we the, listen, the Bible was not made, and li, hear me well. The Bible was not made to be studied. The Bible was made to be studied to lead to transformation, not just information. We already know more than we're living up to. So God's not just trying to give us information when he gave us the Bible. He's trying to transform us by what he says to us in the Bible. And so if you are a person today that is willing to say, and, you know, I don't need an aisle parade. I'm not, I'm not looking for numbers. I'm, I'm just delivering the message that God gave me a month ago. If you want to be a person that is surrendered and committed to perseverance and encouragement, not just now, not just this week, 
but consistently so that the Gentiles, those that are in our community, those that are in our region, can know the gospel, then I'm just going to ask you to make your way down to this altar. Now, if, you, if you're not going to do it, don't, don't do it. Don't lie when you sing. Don't lie in church. But I'm just going to ask you to make your way. If, if you want to be used by God to fill this place up with the lostness of this community so that they can be seen and heard to the glory of God as transformed lives, then I'm just going to ask you to just make your way down. Just find a place where you can stand or where you can kneel. And I want us just to pray before God that God would make us a church that's not just a good church, but a church that is on mission for what God has put us here for. That we would not take our foot off the pedal, that we would not grow weary in well-doing, that we were here and heed what God has to say to us, wants to do through us in this place at this time. Let me just pray for you. Father, you fell on 120 people in an upper room with power and they went out and 3,000 people were saved in a matter of minutes. We do not lack power. But sometimes we live like we're on the wrong side of Pentecost. The right side of Calvary and the wrong side of Pentecost. We don't lack power. We have the spirit within us. We don't lack truth. We have the word in our hands, easily available and accessible. What we do lack sometimes is a willingness to obey and to put ourselves out there and to risk rejection or to risk someone being offended by truth. God, today, change the page for this body of believers, for this pastor, for our staff. Change the page. Give us a fresh page and a fresh chapter of walking with you and knowing you and living in perseverance and endurance of stimulating one another to faith and good works, to the hope of Jesus Christ, to the glory of God, so that Jews and Gentiles, that people of every tribe and tongue in this community, in this region, can gather in your name and praise you and worship you and serve you and love you and live out their faith. Lord, time is short. And we need to be about your business. So when we break out of this worship service in just a moment, Father, I pray that we would be like those two on the road to Emmaus. Did not our hearts burn within us? We must speak of what we have seen and heard. And the people of God said, Amen. Amen.